to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, Boris Jimmy Kent Karloff. And now, here he is, the Prince of Darkness himself, Tilzabob. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> I don't have a creepy voice, but I had to mute myself during that opening. <laughs> So, Why so, so? So I wouldn't just interrupt the whole thing with laughter. I love oh. a great creepy voice. Yeah. Well, it's my it's my Boris Karloff. <laughs> we are we are getting ready to do our Halloween themed episode. Oh yes. And this month, our friends at the Criterion Channel have offered us up a huge bonanza of horror-filled gems from the 1970s. Are you going to keep this up at all? <laughs> I may be putting this character away to the holidays, where we will bring him back to narrate how the coronavirus stole <laughs> Christmas. Okay. Oh, that was a good bit. All right, yeah, a little fun there. <laughs> hey, welcome to our horror Halloween-themed episode um, that I'm titling Jim and Teal Scare You to Death. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> yes, all right. So here's the deal uh, to all of you uh, listener friends. Uh, Criterion Channel, which I always urge people to get, they've got, uh, they have like 23 or something movies Um from the 1970s. And some of it, I think, that they just threw there because they had access to it, quite <laughs> it honestly. It certainly seems like it, yes. <laughs> um, but you know what? They, 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 I, I was like, I think there's got to be some themes, some commonalities. Maybe there's some pairings. Uh, there's got to be a, a sort of a reason why they picked the movies they picked. Yeah. And what was, I thought, interesting is they didn't go for, uh, like, there are a few, you know, big names sure. in, in the horror lore, but they went for a lot of weird things that maybe people that have seen everything in horror still might not have seen. Yeah, I mean, these are some real forgotten movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I forgot so many of them that I never even heard of them. Well, <laughs> some of them. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so here's what, I you know, I was like, my mission was, this is one of the great things about horror films, especially anything that's not made today. I mean, you know, like Midsommar, oh, let's make a two and a half hour horror movie. Right. But everything before that, these things were meant for 90 minutes. Yes. And without fail, every one of these films is anywhere from between 85 to 95 minutes, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah, for a number of reasons. One was just you could play it more times in a day, and the other is just it costs less to shoot a shorter movie. Absolutely. These were just throwaway films meant as double features, drive-in movies. Yeah. Um, and we're going to go into all of those things because basically with this list, I looked at it and I was like, oh, I've seen a good handful of these movies. Right. And if I have a chance, maybe I'll watch a few again. Uh, because, you know, my oldest son, he's he somewhat likes horror. So maybe there's some films there. And my wife, this is her month. This is the month oh, that yes. I say oh, yes. I will watch yep. horror movies because most most of the time when she wants to watch these horror films. I'm like, I don't really feel <laughs> like it. How about October? And then I push it out and hopefully these movies disappear from the streaming services. Uh, but then Criterion, I was like, guess what? We're getting to watch all the horror you want this month because <laughs> we're going to do a show at the end of the month. And I've got to see as many as I can. So that's what I did. Uh, I, I know that you've seen some, too. Yes. I've even supplemented with a few stragglers from other services. That okay. We'll talk Interesting. About. Wow. Okay. And, and so I said, well, how are we going to tackle this? Right. I don't want to jump around as we always do. So I want to start with the way Criterion started. They listed them in kind of a chronological right. order. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mention a film and maybe I'll give you a few details about it. And, you know, you tell me, like, if you haven't even seen the movie, okay, and if I right. haven't seen the movie, we're going to move on pretty quick because uh, we got a lot to get to. I mean, we've got, like, maybe 30 movies in the mix today. Sounds good. Okay. So the first one, which I think was was a Mystery Science Theater uh, or a Rift Tracks <laughs> film, by the way, uh, is something I've seen a long time ago with uh, my wife on a streaming service was uh, Trog by director and cinematographer Freddie Francis. <laughs> Trog. Okay. Have you seen it? No, I have not. Okay. So basically, Joan Crawford is a scientist and they found... Like basically a troglodyte oh, who happens to be right. left over living around. And uh, it is a guy in a leftover 2001 ape costume. 
literally from 2001 or it's just literally a, a costume from 2001 <laughs> so trog is essentially one of the apes as if the monolith beamed him up to modern times um and so you know freddie francis right he shot glory won an oscar elephant man he shot sons and lovers won another oscar cape fear straight story the innocents this guy great cinematographer but yet he directed tons of horror movies. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Because that was his fun thing to do. Okay. I guess. There's other jobs. So, uh, Trog, I didn't rewatch because Trog is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It really is. You didn't even give it, you didn't even try. No, it's not a horror movie. It's silly. <laughs> it's just a silly movie. But I think what Criterion's trying to say is that, look, w- the horror we know now and what it turned into, you got to go through this decade mm-hmm. and it sees the transition. And I think Trog is kind of one of those last remnants of those like crappy 50s and 60s yeah. yep. uh, movies. Okay, so then the next film on the list is The Vampire Lovers, yes. uh, director Roy Ward Baker, 1970. This is a Hammer movie. Uh-oh. Yeah, so... Uh-oh. Uh, 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 <laughs> Ingrid Pitt, of course, and Peter Cushing, <laughs> of course. Peter Cushing made like 400 movies, and about 380 of them were Hammer movies. <laughs> and I know two of them that weren't was Star Wars and Top Secret, so there's got to be eight others out there. Um, and I, as a kid, I was not a big Hammer movie guy. Yeah, me neither. Like, I don't know if, I don't know, you know, your childhood was much different than mine, but basically I lived in the Boston area and there was a a UHF channel called 56. Oh yeah. On Saturdays they had creature double feature. Okay. Creature double feature would go through the gamut. So, uh, for a period of time, the creature double feature was all Japanese monster movies. Right. Okay. Loved those. Yeah. Yeah. Then you would get... All of the old, like, Universal monster movies. Right, right, right. All right. Then you get, like, those 50s, like, I was a teenage werewolf. Okay. And some of the Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. werewolf ones. And then they would go through a period, which is the period that I was always like, oh, when are we going to get out of this period? It was the <laughs> Hammer movie period. <laughs> And then there was also the Vincent Price period. They would have a lot of Vincent Price, too. So that was kind of, and they would always have these things in buckets, right? And you had to get through them to get back to the one July. Like they purchased a bucket of Corman movies. Exactly. Um, so I saw, you know, I couldn't even tell you the names. I just knew because they had an aesthetic. They had a look and they had a stock cavalcade of actors that were in these things. Christopher Lee and... Peter Cushing. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and usually Ingrid Pitt and some yeah. other voluptuous uh, actress. So, uh, The Vampire Lovers starts out with an amazing five minutes. Uh-huh. And then it kind of really gets very stodgy. And I, I've tried to watch this movie now a couple of times, once a couple of years ago, because it gets, gets you in right away with the first five minutes. Okay. And I just couldn't make it past. I've seen about 25 minutes of this movie. And it's really, I think it's there to show you how... The age of Hammer was changing, and this was the last of those traditional Hammer movies. Oh, interesting. Okay. Plus, they were like, hey, we can do rated R now. Right. So, they could be a little bit gorier. Okay. Um, the same same super bright, orangey red blood in buckets. Oh, that weird fake blood. Yeah, which was like a sensor thing. You couldn't show things that looked too real. Yeah, and so it ends up, it looks like paint instead of- uh, It absolutely looks like paint. Instead of corn syrup, like it's too, it's too opaque. Yeah, and it's, and of course, the way like, I don't know, the stock of film that Hammer used and everything. I mean, again, there was a look, and there's people that love, love Hammer movies. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and that, you know, they have fond memories, and of course, you know, it, it, there's so many of these vampire movies, it's like basically, I don't know, there may be like 50 of them, where it's, it's basically Peter Cushing plays some kind of version or relative of the Van Helsings, and then Christopher Lee plays Dracula. Okay. That's, I don't know, like I said, if you've never seen any of these things, that's the formula. That's the formula. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So I really haven't quite understood what the formula of the Vampire Lovers is yet, because like I said, I I didn't watch the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing with probably, that probably happened to you with a bunch of these movies where you can't quite bear to watch the whole thing. Right, except for I unfortunately did watch the whole thing of many movies, um, as we're going to find out. Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay, okay. Okay, next one is one that uh, I saw a few years ago. It's not very good. It's called Let's Scare Jessica to Death by director John D. Hancock. Yes. Uh, have you seen it? No. 
Okay. Now, <laughs> John D. Hancock, is that the same? I got to I got to look this up. No, I'll tell you. I got I got some I got some okay. beats for you. He he's made a lot, you know, he made all sorts of like weird TV stuff and everything, yeah. but he made uh shortly after this Bang the Drum Slowly. That's right. Okay. And then he did this terrible film in 1975 called California Dreaming where Seymour Cassell shows up. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's like a, it's like one of those beach uh, surf movies. Okay. <laughs> that happens to have Seymour Cassell, um, who's not the beach guy, but he's in it. I think he runs a bar or something. And that, So, Let's Scare Def- Jessica to Death, 1971. This is an interesting thing, and this is where I feel like I see this throughout the Criterion films. Uh-huh. It's more of a psychological horror film where the state of mind of the protagonist, which is usually a woman, right. is called into question. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and so it's a little more psychological and less kind of gore or fright-oriented. So the actress, she's been in lots of stuff, like nothing that jumps out at me, but Zora Lampert. Uh, she's got a very distinguishing look, and she's just been released from a mental hospital. Okay. And there are people in the town that are trying to, like, torment her, but you then... You have to wonder, like, is she, is there a balance? Is that, is it, what's going on in her head versus what's really happening? Right. Okay. You know, and then is there, and so then is there also a supernatural element trying to haunt her? Right. Okay. Is this, uh, th- those are fairly regular horror tropes, though, that we see, like this. Well, yes. And I, but I don't know if we saw, saw them a lot before 1970. I think you're right. I think that that may have been. I don't know. We'd have to. Okay, I'd I'd have to do a little research, but I think you might be right. But that's what this episode is about is we're giving you a little taste. And now if anybody's intrigued by one of these titles, go and watch them. Yep. Go and watch them. Yeah, because just because we're going to be this is over. But however, I will say to you, if we talk about a movie and you're like, oh, well, that sounds really good. Well, go watch it and we can always talk about it as a follow up. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. We will have a follow up to Let's Get Jessica today. (laughs) I mean, is it worth is it worth watching? Yeah. You know what? When it comes to these, I can't. I can't tell you. Every, look at horror; like everything is subjective. Yeah, so I, I guess might that's say, true. but but I guess you know. Does it? It's give, more. It's more worth watching than Trog. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, when we're done with this episode, you should rank all the episodes on our website. Wait, we mean rank all uh, sorry, the movies? Sorry, r- rank all the movies that you watched for this, yeah. Uh, I will, yeah, no, with my infinite scads of time, <laughs> I will get right on that. <laughs> okay, well, maybe. Um, so, uh, the next movie, 1971, is a film that we talked on this show because I saw it and I was encouraging you to see it. And yeah. then I really, I, I wanted to, you to see it during this particular, like, uh, criterion. And I feel like criterion, when they put a movie on their list, it somewhat adds a little, um, I don't know. It adds a little panache or something to the movie. It does, but it, yeah. It's German guy, Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness. Yeah, so I uh, I didn't even really know about this movie. I told you, but you were probably well, like, no, 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 oh, I, sure, Jim. No, yeah, no, whatever. no, I know, I know you had told me, but prior to that. <laughs> Never heard of it. That's why I watched it that time, because I'm like, what is this movie? Yeah, uh, so prior, prior to you mentioning it, I'd never heard of it. And so I didn't even read the description. I just decided to go and watch it excellent um yeah so i watched it totally blind and uh i i don't know what i was expecting um (laughs) but i was blown away by this movie it's insane right it's it's so uh, i mean yes it's insane but it's also like compared to some of the other movies i checked out here that i didn't watch the whole thing of uh it is so well photographed that's what i was saying the first of the visuals it, it, the the compositions and- yes the visuals are absolutely amazing and the use of color is incredible it's sort of and I, and i read a little thing with the director that he wanted to put the uh the i don't know what do you call her the villain or yes uh the baroness or whatever she was the baron the countess the countess Countess. he wanted to put her in nazi colors yes she has like right like as if she could have been living through the nazi exactly and And so the film is that's just an example of sort of how layered the film is with its imagery and use of color and it's really done with a lot of intention uh but also the acting is great the story is so weird 
It is. Uh, uh, the story is so weird and unfolds in such a strange way, but it's completely compelling the whole way through. And it does, it, it has some gore and violence, but it's not really, it's not really trying to shock you or scare you in that way. It's just all very unsettling. And yes, and you feel like you, yeah, it, it's basically just all very creepy and unsettling. And <laughs> the ostensible villain is not really who is the it's really the husband i feel like is the villain yes and he's going through all sorts of like questions about his manhood sexuality and (laughs) And, and, yeah he's in both the two of them and i was unsure about the wife at first but she ends up being a really interesting character but but they they are really interesting characters they're not just like your typical tourist couple that gets you know taken in by some evil force they uh they're their own kind of really strange dynamic. I mean, you could do a movie just about the two of them and it would still, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you know what? It's even though it follows a lot of these vampire traditions. Yeah. It really um, it never says overtly, let's be a vampire movie. Exactly. And that's what I liked about it. Yeah. And OK, so the one thing I did not like about it. Okay. And again, <laughs> I haven't seen it in a while. And, you know, these movies kind of disappear from my memory. Yeah, I, I just have I have. Well, I have two nitpicks with the movie, but one of them I'll ignore. Well, the because detective bothered me in the, in the movie. The but. detective bothered me. I didn't like the ending. Yeah, that's well. So there's now you've, you, know, you said something very interesting. One of the things that I noticed through the horror genre in general, but especially in these 70s, a lot of times these movies, I guess, are about the journey because they don't really know how to wrap it up in a satisfying way. Yeah. You know, we're going to come into several more of these. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, I just didn't buy, I'll just come right out and say it, but I, I, I didn't buy that a vampire who'd been alive for hundreds of years uh, would suddenly one day get the time wrong and get burned up in the morning. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and then it just seems like it's such a random event at the end. It doesn't seem to like it, there's, there's no. It, it didn't seem tied into the rest of the movie. It was just like, let's just put a car crash at the end. Yeah, it was kind of, it was weak. It was weak. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I, so I don't think I saw any of these other films on the list that I could compare Daughters of Darkness to, but I think that The Hunger yes. feels a little bit inspired yes. by Daughters yeah. of Darkness. Yep. Uh, absolutely. It does. I think. Uh, uh, and, and this is a movie. I just, I highly recommend this movie. It's, it's uh, one of the best movies I've seen this year. Daughters of Darkness? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, when I recommend a movie to you like months ago, I usually don't try to steer you wrong. I'm not like, (laughs) I'm like, I look for something that's just like, this is something I have not seen. Yeah. uh, No, it just, uh, it reminded me of Suspiria in weird ways. No, I, I, yeah. That European feel to it. Yes. It had that European feel. What was it? Jajilo movies? Is that what they're called? Jalo. Jalo. It had a lot of the Jalo because of the detective yes. aspect and the murder mystery aspect. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like kind of like a Jalo movie. It is, but with like less gore and less, and it's less fright oriented. Well, okay. Here's the first thing that I noticed about this movie that sort of took me by surprise. I was expecting one of these early 70s imports that was all dubbed. Me but, too. But yes. it wasn't yes. dubbed. No, it's in English. That's what really first threw me for a loop and said, "Oh, that's not what I was expecting of a movie." <laughs> no, I like was this. I was ex- I was totally expecting it to be all dubbed, and it was not. Yeah, it's just a really interesting movie. I, I it's it's very unique, I think, and it should it's it's one on this list that should definitely not be forgotten. Yeah, if I so far out of the ones we've talked about, I would recommend for people to see Daughters of Darkness. Yeah. Now, the next film is one that I did not get to, and part, partly because I saw the director, and I'm like, ooh, uh, that's The Nightcomers, <laughs> directed by Michael Winner. Yes. And that's 1971, and it's got, uh, it's got The Godfather in it there, Marlon Brando. Oh, yeah. And it is a take, uh, it is a sort of a, I guess, a prequel of sorts to The Turn of the Screw, which I guess is sort of interesting. Uh, but I haven't checked it out. I'm not that interested. And you know what? I'm probably not going to check it out. 
Okay. Just because of Michael Winter or? No, because it's like we're doing the episode now and I can't get to them all. <laughs> okay, and I just start, I'm like, it's, you know, I moved, the ship has sailed. But have you, you haven't seen the Nightcomers, right? Uh, nope. Don't really plan to. All right. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit misogynistic. Uh, okay. I I did read a tweet from director Anna Biller, who clearly is watching a lot of these Criterion movies, and she seemed to have a few negative comments about it. So Okay. Next thing on the list, this is, I think, wraps up our hammer. <laughs> director Alan Gibson, I don't know, that he died at age 49, was uh, Dracula AD 1972. <laughs> yeah, that is a movie that I will never watch just based on the title. Now, it's funny, is because of the title, I felt I had to watch it, and I just finished it um, well, between last night and this morning. And of course, it's got the, the great pairing, Christopher Lee. And Peter Cushing. Of course. And really what this is, is I think it's the final wooden stake in the coffin of the Hammer movies. <laughs> because, and they, you know, they, they had a few more years, but it was like, oh, well, how do we update this for the kids today? Those hipsters in, in London. Let's make a, a hip swinging London version <laughs> of Dracula. Okay. And it's okay. got like this kind of hip like soundtrack of like, you know, sort of jazzy, swingy London music. Music. Uh, wow. Yeah, and it starts out, feels like a leftover from uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Okay, okay. Look at all these young, hip London kids. And when I say hip, they're like all in their 20s, but they all look, they dress like the 20s of the 70s, dress like people in their 40s. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and Peter Cushing, who plays as, uh, he's like a descendant of Van Helsing, and Christopher Lee, of course, is Dracula. Um, you know, who basically there's some ashes and a special Dracula ring that gets burnt on a big, big opening confrontation between the two that takes place like a hundred years before. Uh-huh. And, and of course that gets saved by this guy and his name is Johnny Alucard. Yeah. Johnny Alucard. And of course this is the best part is that Peter Cushing who's like I said, the descendant of Van Helsing, he puts two or two together. He's like Johnny Alucard. Hmm, that sounds intriguing. So there's a whole <laughs> sequence where he's sitting there at his desk and he's got the name um, Alucard written out and uh-huh. he's got all these strings and stuff and he's bringing the letters down and then he realizes backwards it's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> It's the greatest scene of the whole movie because he's got all these strings. I'm like, yes, yes, you just hold it up to a mirror and it says Dracula. Um, but it's really funny. Okay, that sounds amusing. <laughs> and the whole movie kind of amused me and just because of the music and uh, this guy, Johnny um, um, Alakadar or whatever his name is, he, he wants right. to uh, raise Dracula up. So they do this like whole crazy blood ceremony with him and all his hip swinging pals. Um, and then, you know, Again, Dracula really wants revenge on Van Helsing, so he wants the granddaughter. Um, and so, you know, Peter Cushing has to figure it out before it's too late. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And that's it. That's what these Hammer movies are all about. Yeah. That's. Okay. I never found them scary. I, I just never did. And but it's but that's a piece of what it's like a preview here in '72. This is what horror was. And so are they? <laughs> they're not really supposed to be scary, though. I know, well, most of the, I don't know if there's any of these horror movies, quite honestly, on Criterion that are really scary. Oh, I well, disagree. Well, we're going to get to them, but... Uh, I disagree. Yeah, we're, there's but a like few. But like The Daughters of Darkness wasn't scary, right? No, it wasn't scary. Okay, so the next movie, which also I didn't feel was very scary, and this is interesting because another thing that happens with 70s movies is frequently they're retitled so that they can uh, lure people, I think, to the drive-ins with a salacious title. Right, yes. So, in 1972, Gary Sherman, who directed uh, this film in the early 80s, Vice Squad, which Martin Scorsese loved. Yep. He also directed Poltergeist 3 and this horror movie from 89 called Lisa. It's movie Deathline. It's another uh, British film. Mm-hmm. And it's also a, a reputation as there was this blacklist of forbidden films in oh. England called The Video Nasty List. Okay. And several titles that Criterion shares with us 
make that list. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Deathline's alternate title was called Raw Meat. Yes. Uh, features uh, Donald Pleasance as of the course. Inspector Calhoun. <laughs> just hamming it up. Basically, he was like Peter Cushing looking for a paycheck and he's like, oh, I don't care as long as I get to make jokes throughout the whole film and be the snarky inspector. Um, <laughs> That's like, I mean, there's so many. It's like a subgenre is Donald Pleasance as the snarky inspector. He is. He actually tones it down a lot in halloween um <laughs> like this is he's super hammy uh then it also features like there's a young young couple one's an american one she's british and so the american is played by this guy actor david ladd who was the son of alan ladd oh okay and the half-brother of alan ladd jr okay who you know was the one who helped greenlight star wars right 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 okay yeah and this actress uh, sharon gurney i mean she was in stuff i don't really know her but she looked a lot like uh, the actress shannon uh, sauceman so okay <laughs> anyways uh this film it was was shot by famous famous uh cinematographer alex thompson Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it, it has an interesting look. Now, I saw the whole thing. You said you only watched a, a tasty little bit of it. Yeah, and I didn't get to that shot. I ran out oh, of time. Oh, you never, you never rewatched it? No, so it. I, I am going to go back to it, yeah. So the film, uh, it starts off, you know, you're like, whatever. Certainly not scary. Where's this going? Um, somebody disappears in the subway. Uh, this person is like, uh, like, look like they're drunk or wounded on the stairs. This couple gets off their stop they find him they of course just said well let's investigate him check his wallet oh look we know who he is then they go up to find you know somebody and by the time that the the policeman decides to come back and look the guy's gone uh so where did he go and that's like a mystery where people are disappearing on the subway but then you get this amazing amazing shot and this is another thing that i see in these horror movies from the 70s where in the 70s filmmakers were in love with the zoom lens yes zoom lenses they never use them now i don't know if maybe they don't work as well with digital or something but man zoom lenses were like a, a filmmaker's best friend in the well, it was it was like a new technology that could do some really amazing stuff and everyone decided to use it it's kind of like steadicam oh, they used it a lot in yeah. the um dracula 1972 um but it, not in the best ways but uh, this death line there's this very it's it's kind of zoomed in at first very so it must have been shot from far away right and then it's panning and slowly zooming out and it basically does a very long kind of tracking 360 okay and you see this disgusting display you're not sure exactly what it is at first but you see these gross like body parts oh wow that are just bloody and chopped up and there's bugs and you see this whole layer of essentially evil and you come across this dead body and you're like what the hell's going on here and then you get tracked down this like long kind of lit corridor and you basically see this guy who's like sort of an living underground oh wow and he's taking care of this woman and they're all like like a scab infested they almost look like they're lepers wow and she's like on her deathbed and he's feeding her blood (laughs) pouring blood down her throat and i'm like this is why she's not doing well sir this is this is the nourishment and he's got like open sores on his head and he's just gross and he speaks kind of like like intelligible wow and this is why they included this movie because it's a precursor to another film that comes up in a couple of years the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so then the film becomes sort of a police procedural, very goofy. Right. And then this couple, and of course, everything's going to com- converge down there at the end. Um, so again, it kind of peters out. I feel like these movies, you get about an hour's worth of entertainment and then it's like, let's wrap it up. 90 minutes is too long. Yep. 90 minutes. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. So again, yeah. So I'll give Deathline another shot just to see that that one shot. It, it really hooked me. Like when I saw that, I'm like, wait a second. Now we're getting an interest. This is something I haven't seen before, um, and it was very gory. And there are often these little flashes of style and interesting idea. There, there's often diamonds in the mud here with these movies. Well, that's why I thought this was a great opportunity. Like 
sometimes Criterion offers you up and it's a collection of 10 movies and I've seen seven of them. And right. so I'm like, well, I guess I could watch those other three. But then there's times like this where I'm looking and I'm like, I don't know what some of these movies are. A Deathline? Raw Meat? I didn't hear of either title. <laughs> Never knew about it. Never. Yeah, ever didn't know it existed. Yeah. Um, now, here's the next movie is something that I've tried to watch before. And it got actually to about the same amount of time this time. <laughs> and it's not that it's not good. It's just yeah. that it, it's going to take patience and time. I ran out of time. And it is slow. And I don't know how good it is. It's certainly not scary. Is yeah. Robert Altman's Images. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen it. And it's shot by Velo Sigmon. Uh, of course. So it looks great. And Susanna York's in it. And a Altman staple, Renee Aubergine. Uh-huh. Uh, so she is like a children's author, but she's like schizophrenic. Okay. And she's jumping back and forth, and she's not sure what reality is real. Another one like Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And we have another one coming up that's like that, too, later on. We but do. That is... Uh, yeah, that's definitely a horror trope, right? Is is the mentally unstable uh, main character where you aren't sure what's real and what isn't? And is that all? Is it is it also a trope that it's usually a woman? No, no, no. Well, the the other one that we have coming up is not a woman. Oh, we got then two. Yeah, we got more than one. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, we got more. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, again, this is like, you know, ripe through the 70s. I just don't, I just think they're more like psychological thrillers than horror. They are more psychological thrillers than horror. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know, I guess it's sort of hard to draw that line, though. Like, where where do you separate those genres? Yeah. But, I mean, I think today's people, like, again, my son's part of that generation. Horror for him is the horror that I don't like is how many jump scares can we pack into a movie? Yes. Exactly. They're fright oriented. Yeah, they not, want to be scared by the movie. Yeah. And I don't want to be scared. I want to be unsettled. Yes. And, and and also just like I find that a lot of times the music in these movies lend itself to it not being scary. Uh, no kidding. Things can be <laughs> completely undone by the music. Yeah. But yet in the Altman movie, the music, which is actually Oscar nominated, is done by a very young John Williams. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, okay. it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, I'm going to definitely finish that one because it's interesting enough. Yeah. And I, just as a fan of Altman's weird uh, forgotten movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like Quintet. It's on my list. I'm waiting. Yeah. I wish they had that on there. I would have been psyched. Used to be on Netflix. Well, maybe it'll be someday, but, I'm, but that's on my list. Uh, also, a, <laughs> totally non sequitur, but... On Amazon Prime, and it's full widescreen glory, and it's so good, is The California Split. Oh, yes, yes. I, okay. It's so good. Um, it's, it's worth rewatching. So, anyways, moving on, still 72. I know we're only in the early 70s here. Yeah. There's so many good. This could be like a five-part episode. Uh, I, was, I was telling you. I, 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 we'll see. George A. Romero. Ooh, the master, right? <clears throat> Season of the Witch. No. Have you ever seen it? George Romero, I saw it when I was in high school, Yes. Probably because it's you were probably like, oh my god, Dawn of the Dead is my favorite movie. What else does this guy have? Don't you don't want to go too far and see what else he has? And I watched every Romero movie I could find at the time, and they're all terrible. This is the sad uh, reality, folks. And I'm going to just share the, the the news. George A. Romero is not a good filmmaker, though he made a landmark film that, by filmmaking standards, isn't that good, which is yes. Night of the Living Dead. And then he made Dawn of the Dead, which somehow he put all his powers together and made one perfect movie. And that's it. That's that's his whole. That's 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 all that's worth watching. Yeah, he had a whole career based on I think the the greatness of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, and he still. I mean, even a few years ago, he was making more zombie movies. Yep, and they weren't good. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, Season of the Witch. This is my take. It feels it's it was shot in sixteen millimeter. It feels. A lot like some kind of grad thesis NYU film. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and you know, you know what I'm talking about. That's what all his films feel I know. like. Uh, it definitely has some overtones of the Love Witch, uh, which was on okay. the later. I mean, obviously, I don't know whether she was inspired by it or not, but uh, there's a bit of a feminist uh, slant to the film. Okay, interesting. Well, yeah, I can see that goes hand in hand with witchcraft. A, a weird lead performance by this actress who maybe did only like two movies in her life was Jan White. Must have been a friend of George Romero's. Uh, it was also known as The Hungry Wives. Oh. I think they were capitalizing on witchcraft thing because it takes a really long time for anything witchcraft related to happen. And then it's really <laughs> not like, it's not about witches. It's hard to explain, but there is one great sequence in the movie. 
And that's when she first decides she's going to try to dabble into witchcraft. Uh She goes to a witchcraft store and they play Donovan's season of the witch. (laughs) And it just has an energy that the rest of the movie doesn't have. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. So he, he got one good scene out of that. Pretty much. And it's like, it was interesting. I mean, it was not much happening in the film. It was very talky. Okay. And when you have non-trained actors talking a lot, that's interesting. That's something I noticed uh, about, well, I don't know. Like, Daughters of Darkness is very talky. Yeah, I don't know. But that's like, you know, there's one that I'm going to defend forever because there's something. It was that lead actor, the Baroness there. The, it, is, it is amazing. She's yeah. in that movie that you were telling me about uh, that's like six hours long. Which movie is that? Was it Chantel Ackerman's film or, or was it Agnes Varda's film? You had looked it up. Oh, I had looked it up. Now, I, okay, I'm blanking on it. Let's, we'll come back to it. Yeah. But we, we talked about it before. I'm yes. just saying it's that you you, you just, it, there's these juicy performances. They use the set of that castle or that, that, that seaside uh, resort. Seaside resort, which reminded me of that other movie where the woman goes to the seaside. It's that black and white movie, Lost Souls? Maybe, no. Oh, oh, Carnival of Souls. Carnival of yeah, Souls. Yeah, you know what? In a weird way, it does. That's, you know. Yeah, the location reminded me of Carnival of Souls. I didn't rewatch this. I've seen it. You know, this is a classic. And so if, it, if someone hasn't seen it, I will say that this is one of the, the horror staple classics of the 70s is Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. It's an unsettling movie. That's the kind of horror I like where it's just a very weird situation this couple is in. <laughs> And it's very unsettling and there are some fright scares, but uh, largely, yeah. And I, I didn't rewatch this either, but I've seen it several times. And yeah, based on a story by Daphne du Maurier. Yeah. It's that whole, what are we seeing is in the state of the mind of say Donald Sutherland. Exactly. Is it going on? Is it his grief and guilt that's causing all this or is there actual something supernatural or yeah. Yeah, he keeps seeing this image of what he believes is his daughter running around the uh, the streets of Venice um, and the canals and stuff. And that's that's another thing too. Great great use of location in this movie. Yes. Oh, great use of location. Julie Christie has this very strange encounter with this woman and her daughter, um, and they seem to be clairvoyant. And, uh, you know, again, it's just like I said, it's, is it my favorite movie? No. I don't think it's the scariest movie of all time, which some claim, uh, but it's- Oh, definitely not, but but it's- it's it can be disturbing and unsettling and it gets to you it's an, and it's nicholas rogue which the way he makes films and his editing style is so like very few times will you see a film maker and say oh the editing style is something very specific to that director yes. and that's the way it is with nicholas rogue he just does not edit a story the way more most people do no not at all. well and it's it starts at the script level but then yeah he does not put it together yeah, his cross-cutting ability is unlike any. Like, if you were studying yes. cross-cutting. So, anyways, I don't know if we really need to spend much time on Don't Look Now because it's really a known entity. And it is worth watching if you haven't seen it. It just so happens to be like, I, I was like, wow, there's all these other films that I've never seen that I've got to watch. Right. Um, so, here's one that I think you rewatched, and I did. I watched half, and I thought for sure that my wife and son wanted to continue, like, right away the next day. But they didn't, and we didn't get back to it. But we will, and it's just the greatest, is uh, Brian De Palma's Sisters in 1973. It is great. I... I did rewatch it. I, I, I saw this probably in 1989 or 90. Uh, it had been, uh, uh, what are they, restored. It, they, had, they had done a, like a restored print, and they were having a special screening at the DGA with Ed Pressman and Brian De Palma and Margot Kidder and Jenny Salt. You know what? You probably saw this in that winter of 93, because it would have been the 20th anniversary. Oh, yes. And you were out in L.A. So and that, I was out in L.A. Okay, so that, yes, you're probably right. That it probably was winter of 93. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I think it was. And so I saw it with them. It was really interesting. It was kind of like a family reunion for all of them. Uh, they were on stage. They answered questions. And re-watching it, I had the same problem I did with it originally. Oh, what was that? It's that the first 45 minutes is amazing. Well, yeah, and of course, I've just watched the first 45 minutes, and there's so much going on, and the second half isn't as good, but... That's basically it, is that the second half loses its way a little bit. And you you watched that De Palma documentary, right? I did. 
Okay, so he says in there at one point, and I've always thought this way about De Palma, so it was nice to hear him say it, is that he sees movies as a series of sequences and that you build these sequences and then the script is kind of there to string your sequences together. And so the first 30 minutes, say, of Sisters is basically one sequence. It's this couple that meets and it follows them and it's kind of leads up to the cake. It leads up to the cake. Exactly. And then but even even when uh, the cake is being done. Well, you're talking about you're 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 saying that the whole thing starts and it really does. It has momentum all the way up through uh, Jennifer Salt seeing what she thinks she's seeing. Exactly. And then going over there with the detectives. That whole sequence is so great. It's so great. Yeah. That, and so basically that first 45 minutes is like two amazing sequences that are incredibly tense and Hitchcockian and done with some incredible split screen and camera movement. And then the movie loses its way a little bit while uh, the Jennifer Salt character is investigating the crime. Yeah, and, and she gets uh, Charles Durning involved. And it ju- it, it, so it just loses some momentum. And then it gets very um, talky. Right. I think De Palma's best when he's not talky. I agree. Yeah. Well, when, when he can put together, his, what he does best is putting together these sequences and using filmmaking techniques to give you a very interesting, you know, perspective. And exactly. Things. And so he does that incredibly well in the first 45 minutes of Sisters. And then it kind of loses some steam for me. However, I will say that, again, especially with that first 45 minutes, which I did rewatch. Yeah. The filmmaking on display is so head and shoulders above most of the films on this list so far above them i mean and and he's not operating on a much larger budget than most of them yeah and his way like this there's this you know it's what maybe three minutes to but it feels like a lot longer that split screen sequence yes is so incredible is so incredible yeah and it had so much tension, right? Because you can see so much things. tension. Yeah, and it's just an interesting way of doing that. Like I, I it was uh, again. I, I really liked it. And there was another thing that he does in this film that is way unusual for any film of its time. There's an actor, Lyle Wilson. He is a African American actor. Yes, and he is the lead for the first like what forty minutes. Thirty. 30 and he and he gets involved with margot kidder yeah they meet on this sort of game show thing and then they have a date but then they go back to her place for the night and you never get a sequence in a movie in almost any decade where you have you know an interracial couple yeah and they have sex and what's not ever talked about in the movie is he is a black man like, it's just race isn't an issue. It's mentioned once when they're talking about because I, 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 I was very aware of that, that it's, it, it's there's no issue made of it at all. And it's only mentioned at one point later on with the police uh, to identify him. And so I thought that was pretty refreshing. Yeah, because it was just, hey, this is a person who just gets to be an actor. And it, it's not about he wasn't cast because of his color or against right. his color. He was just cast. And so those are things that this movie offers. Uh, plus, for some reason, and I don't know why she never became a bigger uh actress but i really enjoyed jennifer salt in the movie yeah well she you know her dad right waldo salt yes and as far as i know about jenny salt is she became a writer i think right she was also on soap wasn't she <laughs> I don't, yes she was on soap yeah, yeah. uh but uh yeah, but i really liked her in the movie and also like margot yeah, kidder too. which is interesting side note is that she spent a lot of time in montreal yeah which is how she got develop that accent for the show of the movie she is from canada isn't that that is right right because at first because you're so used to her playing that like you know the the voice that she had for most of her life and then she plays this different character and you're like well where did she come up with that but when i think she actually does speak french she does or she did she's passed away she did she um, passed away but but her performance is pretty incredible in this movie it is it's great and i can see where you know why she got a lot of roles in the uh, 70s which she'll pop up again um in the 10th hour 
of yes. the show. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so again, we were, we're giving like snippets. Here's one we can move over pretty quick because I don't know, if, unless you saw it. Nope. Theater of Blood, Douglas Hickox. Nope, didn't see it. It's got Vincent Price. I skipped it. 73. Yep. Uh, another one that we're going to, you know, look, everybody's seen this and if you haven't, of course, it's a classic, but I didn't rewatch it because I've seen it many times is Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man. Yep. I have never seen the sequel. Oh, I have. Come on now. You got to see it. It's great. <laughs> Really? It's a little low budget. And of course, low budget in the 70s, I appreciate more than low budget later because he shot it with like video cameras right. or whatever. But it's got some great stuff. Okay. I will check it out. I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen The Wicker Man, it's just a classic. It's part of your film education kind of just has to be seen yeah basically for like the wicker man sequel uh this is just a setup they of course they need virgins right right so what better way than they like recruit a uh like a a christian country band from texas to come on out <laughs> for this festival <laughs> i love it it was so great yeah, uh, so that's, that's definitely uh, yeah you okay. gotta check that out uh another film that i had uh, didn't get a chance to see uh they've been featuring a few of his films is a um is, is a black director named bill gunn and it's this sort of i guess a sort of a black exploitation horror movie uh, ganja and hess okay haven't seen it nope so i'd like to check it out i might yeah can't believe it's 73 george romero's back the crazies okay yeah that movie sucks it's terrible i always <laughs> wanted to watch it i've seen the sequel in 2010 was pretty good actually yeah 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 the the or remake or whatever it was it's a great concept yes and it's funny is that the homage to the crazies is really Return of the Living Dead. Yes. And they took basically the two concepts of George Romero. They combined the crazies with the zombies. Uh, right. <laughs> and the part that they combined with the crazies is really the government trying to shut down and contain an epidemic. Exactly, yeah. But the acting is terrible. Yep. The filmmaking is shoddy at best. They have this awful music, which was basically like a drum going... Yes. The whole movie. It's like, oh. Um, and you know, here's the thing. I was thinking, th this is why I like watching these crappy low-budget films. It gets me to think about movies a different way. One of the things that I noticed about The Crazies is I think that whatever camera they shot, it was shot on 35, I believe, yeah. is I think it had one lens. Oh, <laughs> and you know it's hard like you think well what are what are different lenses well i don't know always what different lenses do but i can tell you what they don't do when you don't have them <laughs> you get no variation in shots everything looks right. very flat so whatever lens they used and maybe it was a 50 millimeter or something it right was just a normal lens yeah flat there's no depth and so whatever sets they're using in turn look like sets and it's, you know, there's no zoom to, to kind of give you different perspective. It's terrible. Well, it, it, George Romero just, I mean, we were just talking about Brian De Palma and it's like, I can't imagine two low budget filmmakers farther on opposite ends of the style spectrum. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't think George Romero went to any film schools or anything and De Palma did. So I know, but George Romero could have at least watched a few movies. It, I think they included it because of obviously the pandemic yes. and you get to see, well, here's what imagined <laughs> epidemic and how they're going to handle it from a government. So that part is a little fascinating, but I found this movie hard to watch. It's conceptually interesting. It's just, it's hard to watch because it's not, it's just boring and it was. I mean, we. I watched it about seven different times to get to the whole oh, thing. It, it's just, yeah, no, I, yeah, and I haven't seen it. I didn't rewatch it. I haven't seen it in 30 years, but. You don't need to. <laughs> that was enough for me. Uh, I will say, though, that just like Brian De Palma, it features a performance uh, by a guy named Lloyd Holler, and he plays this guy, Colonel Peckham, and he's also a black actor. And he's just a guy in charge in one area and there's nothing, it's just, they, he cast a person of color and I think that was really great in a That's, lead role yeah. and it had nothing to do with what color he was and it wasn't an issue. It wasn't, there's no racial tensions or anything. He just happens to be an actor in the movie. Well, it's kind of like that Night of the Living Dead. Oh, that too. That's why I, so I look at what were these filmmakers doing in this genre that mainstream films were not. Yeah, mainstream films were a lot more white. And if they weren't, race was an issue. And we got one of those coming up right next. Yeah. Uh, this one is not on the Criterion list, but I'm putting it in the chronological order. Okay. Uh, and we watched this because I haven't seen it. I, this was shocking to me. I hadn't watched it in 20 years. 
And that's what I couldn't believe. It's been 20 years. Like when you're an adult, 20 years right. goes by a lot faster. <laughs> like, wait, I just saw that. Yeah. And so uh, was we watched because my son wanted to see it. Um, so my wife and I and son watched The Exorcist. Oh, good. Okay. We watched the director's cut version, which is what I saw 20 years ago. Okay. I have the not theaters. seen the, I don't think I've seen the director's cut. I remember liking the director's cut because some of the things that people didn't like, I enjoyed. I didn't like it as much, though, those scenes the second time around. Okay. And also, a little Lee J. Cobb goes a long way. I am not a big fan of the movie in general. I got to tell you, I really, aside from like some of the extras and some of the ridiculous parts of the screenplay, which a lot had to do with Lee J. Cobb's character, the detective, it's so well crafted. Well, there is that. Oh, yes. my God. That really goes a long way. I mean, yeah. everything about The Exorcist, because it was so popular, right. it changed horror movies. And yes. what William Friedkin doesn't give you in The Exorcist is all of the stuff that every other filmmaker in their movie felt they had to give you. Right. Like there had to be the scene where there's this kind of creepy film director who's directing a movie that Ellen Burstyn's in. And in the book, I guess he's kind of mummy be molesting Blair's character. That part's cut out. However, he watches her one day and then suddenly he's, you know, on the stairs dead. But you know that every other movie would give you the scenes between him and her and watch her character kill him. Right. Where the audience now knows what Linda Blair's possession is, but yet the characters around her wouldn't. Right, 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 right. So this keeps us in that in that point of view well, ellen burston has to like start to come around to the fact that her baby girl right and something inside her murdered that person and so those are things that are fascinating there's a ouija board scene my god in the movie which <laughs> you know ouija board is a is a trope that's been kicked around but in that there's no horror music there's no sinisterness but yet there's something creepy about her calling this character on the ouija board Captain Howdy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. There's a lot in. I'm telling you, it was great to rewatch this movie because I saw all the craftsmanship in what they did and him taking time to really go into the Father Kara story. Um, Jason Miller's character is so interesting and just, it's very atmospheric. And I love the opening scenes in Iraq. Oh, yes. Yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. And that takes like a good 15 minutes. And so it really, and it's beautifully shot. It wasn't shot by Owen Roisman. It was shot by uh, Billy Williams because Owen Roisman wasn't available for the second unit. uh, Oh, okay. And it looks amazing, but it's just, it's great because it sets up things that most movies would be like, yeah, you're not going to include this scene. That's interesting. Okay, so maybe it's worth a rewatch for I mean, me. It, well, it was for me. I mean, again, I, okay. I, it's not. I didn't find it scary, but I loved. Yeah. And you know, maybe you try the uh, try the special edition just so you could see it because I think he does these couple of cool things where he because he had CGI to it. He put the Pazuzu face in a couple of spots. Oh, weird. And some people don't like that, but I kind of did. Okay. Because <laughs> they're very like subliminal. Um, so I don't know. I liked it. Okay. Next one is something I didn't rewatch, but I have seen it in recent years. Mm-hmm. 1974, director Larry Cohen, It's Alive. Yeah, I have not seen this in a long time, uh, but I I was a Larry Cohen fan. <laughs> I was a Larry Cohen. You're Co- allowed to be. I, yes, I think I, I was definitely a Larry Cohen fan uh, as a teenager, and- I think largely because of the stuff, of course, which got me into Larry Cohen. And then I started watching his other Michael Moriarty movies. Yeah. So there's Q the Winged Serpent. Q the Winged Serpent. Yeah. And so I watched every Larry Cohen movie I could get my hands on. And he's a director who definitely has a very specific voice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't click with it, man, these movies are terrible. But if you get his sense of humor, uh, they can be pretty fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's totally like schlocky and fun. And it's got this performance uh, character actor that I used to see in tons of movies, John P. Ryan. Yep. Uh, The wife is this actress, Sharon Farrell, who's in Low Move Quaid, Night of the Comets, The Stuntman, Out of the Blue. Um, And it's that classic horror thing where they have a baby. I forget the whole setup where like it got like switched or some, there's some reason why the baby is like some monster. Yeah. And they basically have a monster child. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so there's this, there's a lot of like subtext of like, you know, fear of, of, of having a baby 
baby. And then when the baby gets scared, it goes crazy. And uh, then there's like the whole cop aspect and these murders and trying to figure out, you know, how could it be a little baby? So they suspect, right. you know, it's that whole thing. But again, I didn't feel like I needed to rewatch it. No, I don't. I, I, I appreciate my Larry Cohen phase when I was a teenager, but I, it's not something I really need to revisit uh, in depth. Yeah. Uh, then 1974. Wow, we're just flying through <laughs> Black <laughs> Christmas, also known as Silent Night, Evil Night by director yep. Bob Clark. Yeah, Bob Clark. What a, uh, we could do a whole episode on Bob Clark. Maybe someday we will. Yeah. But I mean, it's got a cast. Olivia Hussey. Uh, she was a Romeo and Juliet. Uh, oh, Margot yeah, Kidder. Yep. yep. Keir Dulla. Yeah, I don't know. Kier Delea, yeah. I think. Uh, John Saxon, yay! Yes, and a very young because this was a Canadian uh, production, right? And so you yeah. got you got Margot Kidder, right? This is a comedian, Andrea Martin. Oh, she plays one of these college co-eds that are living in this, you know. Oh, uh, funny. Yeah, because I was like, who's that? That that person looks like Andrea Martin, but no. And then I had a look around. I'm like, oh my god, it's Andrea Martin. <laughs> It's another one of these, like, uh, kind of like when a stranger calls things, someone keeps calling, threatening. Right. There's a, a whole bunch of subtext. I mean, I don't want to spoil it. I think it's a good movie. There's a great creepy scene where somebody is, like, up in the attic that's been, like, murdered and, like, wrapped in cellophane tape. Cool. So, yeah, it's that's, that's like a staple that's kind of become a classic. So, I, I definitely recommend people checking it out if they, if they haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Okay. Now, here's the biggie. This is probably the one of the, well, besides Exorcist, which, of course, wasn't on the list, and I threw it in there. The big staple, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper, 1974. Yeah, probably the best, one of the best known horror movies of all time, whether people have seen it or not. Just the title is enough to... Uh, you know, have stuck it in people's minds. And I think it, so it's it's sort of it, it's taken on a life of its own that's larger than I think the movie actually is. But yeah, I mean, because there's been like, you know, endless sequels and remakes and yes. reboots. And of course, yeah, the, the name is very salacious. And I feel like most people have seen it. But if they haven't, I actually, you know, we talked about it one yeah. of our very first shows. I told yep. about my experience. That was the only movie that really scared me uh, watching it again. I haven't watched it in many years because it's just not the kind of movie you want to sit there and right, watch. Right. I hope, <laughs> otherwise you, I'm worried. But you about did. It. You rewatched it. Well, one of the first ones I watched, yeah, because uh, my son, you know, again the title, he was so yeah. desperate. I'm like, you know what? It's now on Criterion. That's legitimate. Now you want to watch it? Fine. <laughs> he, of course, was underwhelmed. I'm like, how could you be underwhelmed? I was still creeped out. It's a creepy movie, dude. I don't know if it was a happy accident because Toby Hooper. Let's face it, not you know, again. Maybe a little bit better than George Romero sometimes, but this guy hit the mother load. Yes, the, the filmmaking on display here. It's. I watch again, thinking it's not gonna. It's not gonna really be that intense. The visuals and this movie. Yes, the cinematography is shot by this guy Daniel Pearl, who has shot videos for years. He's done over two hundred ninety-seven projects, most of them videos. Okay. This thing, like, I don't know whether it's because it was like a widescreen lens or something. And they shot on 16, but the lighting and the compositions, everything is so crazy. When we get down to the final girl. Yeah. And mind you, this thing happens. Like, I think the first time I watched it, it felt like that it took place over a series of days because it was so insane. Right. But it's actually a very short period of time. Uh, it's packed into like 89 minutes. Uh, so everything moves very fast. Yeah. When they bring her back to the house. That whole sequence is just, even now, it's so unsettling. They have these super, super close-ups on Marilyn Burns' eyes, and she's all bloodshot, and you see this terror. It's an amazing acting performance by her because she looks like she's absolutely terrorized. Yes, and I think there's something just so raw and real about that movie that I think, like you're saying the cinematography, but it like I don't feel like I'm ever on a set. That's right. They found like there's that um, how they go back to see their like relatives, like, you know, their their childhood house yeah. of grandparents and it's all ban abandoned and they're going through it and it looks like they're going through an abandoned house. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, which uh, I'm just comparing it to the crazies. Right. Where like they set up a scene and it's like, you know, they got four like fake walls. and <laughs> it, it, Exactly. Yeah. And it's it, there's. Yeah, there's something really realistic and raw and sort of uh, uncomfortable about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's uh, it. It doesn't. I, I think it's largely the cinematography. It doesn't come across like these other low budget horror films. 
No, this one is so, I mean, it's, why else would it have survived the test of time? And it's yeah. because it's so well-crafted. I mean, it is just, it, it is real, real horror. Like there's no yes, like, fantastical yes. elements of it. You, I think that's what really always scares me is that, oh, these are things that even as far-fetched as it might seem, it could happen. It's totally po- within the realm of possibility. Yeah. And so that always makes it, um scarier in my book um and that gets to why like the wicker man's kind of a scary thing right it, yeah what happens in the wicker man i guess technically could happen it could yeah and there's it could happen yes what happens in the wicker man definitely could happen whereas like anything when you get into vampire movies well that can't happen right so you yes. have to buy into that concept anytime you have the supernatural or yeah you it, there's there's some suspension of disbelief yeah so you know but anyways, uh, folks out there in listening land, this is, uh, as usual, well, there's just so many films to talk about, and we have a lot, and we don't want to skip over. So we're going to throw this as a two-parter. Um, we're going to give you a second part that you can listen to maybe in a few days after you've heard this one. So I think we're going to say our goodbyes, and then uh, we'll come back, and we'll do a part two so that we can cover the second half of the 70s. <laughs> and then we'll do a part three for the movies we really want to talk about. Yeah, well, you know, I think we got a rhythm. We'll feel like how fast can we get through some of these. Um, all right, so uh, stuffweseen.com, Instagram is Stuff We've Seen Podcast, and feedback at stuffweseen.com if you want to write us about your favorite horror movies of the 70s. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you for tuning in. <laughs> we will be back soon with a part two. <laughs> All right, bye. Okay. <laughs>